0: Welcome to the Mosavar-Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Good morning. Thank you for being here. My
1: name is Scott Leland from the
2: Mosavar-Romani Center for Business and Government. We are delighted today to see you all welcome Colin Mayer as our guest speaker today from Oxford University. He's the author of the book, Prosperity, Better Business Makes Greater Good. And we are, uh, at the end of the uh, session today, we'll be raffling off five copies of the book. So if you haven't had a chance to put your name in the fishbowl, now's a good time to quickly run up
1: um, and do that. Uh, Professors Linda Bilmes and John Ruggie will be uh, hosting the event and offering some questions
2: back and forth for Professor Mayer. Uh, So with no further ado, actually, I'd like to turn it over to Linda Bilmes so that she can get us started. Thank you.
3: Fantastic. Okay, this is on. So greetings, everyone, and especially to some of my students in the audience. I'm Linda Bilmes, and today we are focusing on a very timely issue, the role of corporations in society. Corporations play a key role in every aspect of our lives, and yet there is a growing sense that they are failing us in important ways. When I was getting my degree at Harvard Business School many years ago, I was taught that the role of corporations, the sole responsibility was to maximize shareholder value. And today we recognize that corporations have a profound impact on many Aspects of life, from the environment to their employees to how much taxes are paid to the government to the welfare of their customers. And um, as a result, the classic model of shareholder capitalism is increasingly in question. So, what can we do? Uh, Today, I'm very privileged to introduce two of the leading thinkers on this topic John Ruggie, who is a professor of human rights and international affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School and faculty chair of the Corporate Responsibility Initiative and who is the architect of the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights and our distinguished guest and my friend uh, Colin Mayer, CVE, professor of management studies at Oxford, former dean of the business school at Oxford and whose new book Prosperity Better Business Makes the Greater Good speaks directly to this topic. And just to start us off to underscore how radical this book really is. I'm just gonna read you one quote from the book. The corporation today is inhumane. It is inhumane because we have taken humans and humanity out of it and replaced them with anonymous markets and shareholders over whom we have no control. Stephen Hawking has warned of the consequence of removing humans from control of artificial intelligence and making us no longer masters of our own minds. We have already done that in the corporation by allowing markets, not man, to become masters of our mindful corporations. So uh, welcome to Colin Mayer, and we are very, very uh, delighted to have you here. So I'm going to start off by just asking you to outline what you see as the defects of the current model of corporate ownership.
1: Okay, Linda, thank you very much indeed. And thank you to uh, John uh, for, and Linda for inviting me and Scott. Uh, and thank you very much to the other John uh, for uh, having agreed to discuss uh, the book. I'm going to talk to you about the most, or well, one of the most important institutions in our lives. I'm not talking about the state, religion or the Kennedy School. (laughs) I'm talking to you about an institution that clothes, feeds, and houses us, employs us, and invests our savings. It's the source of economic prosperity and the growth of nations around the world. At the same time, it's been the source of growing inequality, environmental degradation, and mistrust. And to reflect that, a year ago, The British Academy, which is the National Academy of the Humanities and Social Sciences, launched a major program of research on the future of the corporation. It brought together more than 30 academics from across the humanities and the social sciences from around the world to look at the question as to how business needs to change over the coming decades to address the problems and challenges that it faces in politics, society, and the environment, as well as the normal commercial and economic challenges, and how it can best take advantage of technological advances to benefit us as societies at a whole. And what emerged from that was a remarkable consensus from people who came from very different disciplinary backgrounds, from very different institutions around the world, as to what would needed. around three things. First of all, the urgency of change. Secondly, the need to reconceptualise our notion of business. And thirdly, policy levers for really bringing about effective change. And to underscore that notion of urgency, let me just start off by referring you to Ipsomori, which is a market research company that undertakes surveys each year of 1,000 people, of which professions in Britain they trust to tell the truth. They survey 1,000 people uh, over the past 35 years on that topic. Near the top, alongside teachers, doctors, and nurses, I'm pleased to say, come university professors. We might not have much power, pay, or prestige, but at least people trust us to do nothing Earn nothing and (laughs) take no credit for (laughs) it. At the other end lie business leaders. Just ahead of real estate sellers, professional footballers, journalists, and rock bottom come politicians. They come below trade union officials and the man and woman in the street. And this is not just a banker's phenomenon. Because bankers are actually separately recorded, and if anything, business leaders come below bankers. And it's not just a post-financial crisis phenomenon. Because for nearly all of the 35 years of that survey, that has been the case. Mistrust in business is profound, pervasive, and persistent. Why? I suggest that the answer is this. The Friedman doctrine, that there is one and only one social purpose of business. To increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. And that idea has been the basis of business practice, business policy, and business education around the world ever since. And virtually every business school course starts with the proposition that the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder value, and everything else, strategy, operations management, follows from that. But it wasn't always so. (coughs) Indeed, the corporation was established with a very different purpose under Roman law 2,000 years ago, to undertake public functions, collecting taxes, minting coins, building and looking after public buildings. And for nearly all of its 2,000-year history, it has combined a public purpose with its commercial activities. It's only over the last 60 years that this notion that business has only one purpose to make money has arisen. And it is that which lies at the heart of the problems of inequality, environmental degradation and mistrust. And it's going to get worse because while technological opportunities offer tremendous opportunities for advancing humanity and contributing to our welfare, it also poses serious risks. And as technology accelerates, so too does the lag of policy behind business innovation and the response of government and regulators becomes increasingly inappropriate. But things are changing. A month ago, business leaders around the world received a letter from someone who's got the real power to influence our well-being. That letter said, every business needs a purpose, not a tagline or a marketing campaign, but a statement of its fundamental reason for being, what it does on a daily basis. Purpose is not the sole pursuit of profit, but the animating force for achieving them. That person was someone who commands more assets and money than anyone else in the world. He's the president and CEO of BlackRock, and he's not the only leader of a trillion dollar investment fund that has said that. So too are the leaders of Vanguard and State Street, to name just two. And it's not just leaders of asset management firms that are recognising the importance of purpose. The UK led the way in establishing corporate governance rules around the world following the Cadbury Committee that was set up in 1992. And that's been the basis of corporate governance codes in many countries and of the OECD and corporate governance rules. And what lay behind that was the notion that corporate governance was there to align the interests of management with shareholders last July, there was a new Corporate Governance Code that was brought out. It set out that the role of corporate governance is not simply to solve the agency problem as it's termed, but to align management with the purposes of companies. And that that is what corporate governance needed to do. And a month ago, there was a report that set out a stewardship code which said that investment institutions need to have a purpose as well. A purpose that's not only about upholding the interests of their beneficiaries, their investors, but also providing proper stewardship of companies in which they invest. And this is also reflected in the views being expressed by many political figures around the world. In this country, Elizabeth Warren has put forward the notion of the Accountable Capitalism Act, in which she states that companies with revenue in excess of a billion dollars need to have a charter which states that they've got a public purpose. France, President Macron has put forward the notion of raison d'etre, an intrinsic notion of purpose, as a central component of French commercial code. Now, all of this reflects the extent, the speed of change and recognition of the importance of this topic. And the need for us to appreciate that we need to reconfigure our notions of business around why it exists, why it's created, what it's there to do, and what it aspires to become. Namely, the purpose of business. And then everything follows from that in terms of business policy and business practice. The purpose of business is not to produce profits the purpose of business is to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet and in the process it produces profits but profits are not per se the purpose of business everyone who runs successful businesses knows that to be the case and they don't profit from producing problems for people and planet. Instead, what they do is they commit to a common purpose and they commit to those who help to create that common purpose. And those people in turn commit to the company and that common purpose. And that gives rise to reciprocal relations of trust. And those reciprocal relations of trust create mutual benefits both for the firm and for the parties to the firm. It creates more loyal customers, more engaged employees, more reliable suppliers, more supportive shareholders and societies. And that gives rise to greater revenues, lower costs, and more profits. Now what underlies this is the trustworthiness of companies to uphold those purposes and our ability then to trust businesses to do what they say. And underpinning that trustworthiness are the values of a business, values of integrity and honesty and cultures of a commitment to that corporate purpose. And it's those notions of corporate purpose, as I just defined it, trustworthiness and values that underpin the reformulation of business that needs to take place. Now to bring this about, there are four key policy levers that are required. The first is in relation to law and regulation. Corporate law is, at present, focused on the rights of shareholders and the fiduciary duties of directors to uphold the interests of their shareholders. That's not right. Corporate law should be about the obligations of companies to state and uphold their corporate purposes and to require directors to demonstrate how they will achieve it. Regulation is currently viewed under the Friedman Doctrine as being about the rules of the game and the enforcement of the rules of the game. But that is not sufficient because at the moment the way in which business is structured is that there is a direct conflict between the interests of companies in promoting their profitability and regulators in upholding the public interest. And because companies are better informed than regulators, they run rings around regulators and, if possible, turn that regulation to their competitive advantage. Instead, we need to recognise that regulation is also about aligning those private purposes of companies with a public interest, in particular in companies which perform public functions, such as the utilities, infrastructure providers, auditing companies, banks. For those companies, what one needs to do is to incorporate their public licences to operate as part of the fiduciary responsibilities of the directors of companies, in their articles and charters. The second set of policies relate to ownership and governance. Ownership at the moment we associate with the rights of shareholders and in particular the rights of institutional investors. But that is not what ownership should be about. Ownership is about the obligations and responsibilities to uphold the purposes of companies. And there are many different types of owners that can perform that function families, foundations, employees, the state, as well as institutional investors. Corporate governance, as I just described, is traditionally viewed as being about solving the agency problem of aligning managerial interests with those of shareholders. That is not right either. It's about the managerial obligations to uphold and demonstrate that they are upholding their corporate purposes. The third set of policies relate to measurement and performance. At the moment, what we measure are financial capital and material capital. And we measure performance in terms of profits, net of the cost of maintaining material capital. We need to realise that increasingly, what is the main form of capital for companies is no longer just finance, but it's human capital, social capital, and natural capital. And we need to measure those and recognise that profits should be measured not only net of the depreciation of their material capital, but also net of the depreciation of their human, social, and natural capital. And The final set of policies relate to finance, and investment. Finance at the moment is predominantly associated with contractual arrangements between providers and users of finance. And that reflects the fact that the tax system encourages companies to use contractual sorts of finance, in particular debt, by favoring debt over equity. But that should not be the case. And furthermore, to the extent that companies do (coughs) use equity, it comes from dispersed investors because our regulatory system places emphasis on protecting minority investors. We need to recognise the importance of substantial blockholders with whom companies can have relations because they cannot have relations with anonymous dispersed investors. And it's not any relations with the capital markets that they need. They need relations with government, in particular in the provision of large, long-term infrastructure investment. Now those four sets of policy around law and regulation, ownership and governance, measurement and performance, finance and investment, are the means by which one can bring about fundamental change in business to reconfigure it around the notion of corporate (coughs) purposes, trustworthiness and values and culture. And in the next phase of that British Academy project which I just referred, we're going to be focusing on how to develop specific proposals along those lines which will allow these ideas to be implemented by businesses and governments around the world. Now, what I've just been describing is a process that involves a fundamental reformulation of our ideas around business. And to achieve that, what we need to recognise is that we have to change our notion of what capitalism is fundamentally about. The traditional view of capitalism is one that states that it is an economic system of private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. And ownership is traditionally viewed as being a bundle of rights over assets that confer considerable powers of authority over their possessors. And firms are regarded as being nexuses of contracts that are run by boards of directors in the interests of their owners. Now that is a coherent, self-contained set of ideas which says that capitalism is about private ownership for profit through control and power over others who are employed in the form of contracts. And what aligns that with the public interest is then competitive markets, and where where there are market failures, regulation to align the interests of companies with the public purpose. But there's a parallel universe which says that capitalism is not that It's an economic and social system to produce profitable solutions for the problems of people and planet by private and public owners who do not profit from producing problems for people and planet. And ownership then is not simply about the rights of control but the obligations and responsibilities to uphold those purposes. And firms are not just nexuses of contracts, they're nexuses of reciprocal relations based on values and principles enshrined by the board of companies. Now that too is a coherent (coughs) consistent set of ideas which says that capitalism is about solving problems and the obligations on owners and directors of companies to provide the solutions to those problems based on relations of trust with other parties. Now the reason why this is so important is that between that notion of market efficiency and regulatory effectiveness, there is a void. And indeed, as technology accelerates, it's becoming a chasm. A chasm of both market inefficiency and regulatory and government failure. And in that chasm, we rely on companies to transform our individual self-interest into a collective, communal, common purpose. And to do that, we rely on the trustworthiness of companies to achieve it. And trust is the essential ingredient that really distinguishes what I'm talking about here from the conventional view of the firm. Because trust is one, if not the most important asset of business, and at the same time one of the most unrecognized assets of business. Because ultimately, trustworthy corporations are commercially successful corporations, and the competitiveness of nations depends on the trustworthiness of its corporations. And our prosperity for the many, not just the few, and the future as well as the present, depends on that trustworthiness, and that happens to be the title of my book.
3: Okay, thank you. So I'm going to ask Professor Ruggy now to comment on, there's a, quite a lot to comment on, so I'm going to ask John to, to comment now.
2: Thanks very much, Linda, and thanks very much, Colin, for first of all, for writing this book, um, which um, I, I think is, is one of the most um, radical, not in the left-right sense, but radical in getting at the roots of things, uh, most radical books I've read on this subject in a very long time. It's extremely thoughtful. Uh, the historical sweep is impressive. Uh, the comparison um, across countries of how they've dealt with these issues um, is insightful. Um, and of course um, I've never been a great fan um, of Milton Friedman myself. <laughs> um, and I agree that um, the the slavish attachment uh, to shareholder, to maximizing shareholder value, uh, not only um, by by corporates but by by regulators, um, has uh, had uh, significant ad- adverse effects um, on um, the um, uh, uh, the trends toward um, companies not internalizing externalities. Um, um, uh, Contributing to inequality, to environmental degradation, and so on and so forth. So I I just wanted to establish that I think we're very much on on a similar wavelength. But I'd I'd like to ask a few questions, um, if I may. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of your argument, uh, only you will know how much, depends on uh, the, the notion that there is a continuity of the concept of corporation. That goes back to Roman times and... And traditionally, the corporation, you argue, has had a a public purpose. Um, Now, my question, I guess, is that um, there are many things that have been called corporations which aren't really alike. Um, The board of trustees of Harvard University is called the corporation.
3: Um,
2: The American Sociological Association is incorporated. Um, FIFA, the world uh, governing body of football uh, is incorporated under Swiss law. Um, these are very dissimilar kinds of things and and I, I guess my my, my question uh, and they can all be said to have some public purpose so but my question to you is um, has the modern commercial corporation in your view ever really internalized a public
1: corp- uh, purpose? That's my question. Okay. Uh, well, first, first of all, thank you very much for your comments and observations. Uh, and the, the the notion of the corporation being very different uh, in different circumstances and at different points in time is basically the center point of what I'm talking about. Because I'm arguing it's that diversity in corporate form that has been its real strength through the ages. What I talk about in that large sweep of history to which you refer is how the modern corporation emerged as the fusion of two separate types of entities in the Middle Ages, And those two separate types of uh, entities were first of all an administrative structure and to give you uh, an illustration of that one of the oldest examples in the world happened to be Oxford and Cambridge universities which are both corporations and all of the colleges of the university are separate legally uh, incorporated entities. Now that notion of a corporation as an administrative function was then fused with the other type of entity which gained uh, scale uh, over a a, a thousand-year period from Babylonian times, was that of a partnership. Uh, And that partnership rose to its prominence uh, in the Middle East from the 7th century onwards in what was termed the Mudaraba, which was a particular form of partnership contract and it, then it took the form in Europe of the Compagnia uh, which is the basics of the company Compagnis, sharing bread uh, and the Commander. now that partnership arrangement was basically used to <coughs> undertake commercial activities in particular trading activities what then happened around the 14th 15th century was that that partnership model was fused with the administrative model to form the modern corporation which combines an administrative function with the ability to raise capital in the form of the partnership and then to issue shares. Now that combination is really what the corporation was uh, set up to do to combine that ability to raise capital with having a very strong administrative function. And that is how it then progressed over the subsequent 500 years, and there were many examples that emerged of companies that did perform that in terms of combining a public and a commercial function. And at the end of the uh, 20th century, Alfred Marshall the father of industrial economics, observe a wonderful spirit of uprightness and honesty in commercial matters by which the leading offices of our great companies do not yield to the vast temptations of fraud that lie in their way. What he saw at the end of the 19th century were companies of real integrity that fulfilled the notion of commercial activities with a strong sense of the purpose of of the business. And in many cases, those were Quaker-owned companies Mm -hmm. like Cadbury's and Boots. Or or family-owned. And they were family-owned. Now, what made that particularly impressive was that those companies operated in an environment in which there was a Wild West of business a great deal of corruption. But they were able to establish that element of integrity because of the nature of the corporate form. But what has happened since then has been this notion that in essence the firm is entirely accountable for just one thing and that is its responsibilities to its shareholders. And that's the stage then at which this combination of combining that public administrative function with just a commercial activity, took over and where we lost the direction of what the company is supposed to be doing.
2: Great, thank you. Um, I also have a question about the the notion of purpose. Um, It has given rise to quite um, a following, Um, as you know. uh, Marty Lipton, um, the the dean of Wall Street uh, commercial lawyers, said, ah, this subsumes... CSR, ESG, GRI, um, and a whole bunch of other alphabet soup things. Um, And so uh, he advises um, boards of directors to move in this direction before they get regulated. That's one drift. Another drift is the uh, Larry Fink letter that you referred to, uh, which essentially says this is a new social compact. And we would advise the companies in which we invest to move in that direction. Um, then there's a, a, a long article by a Cambridge, England um, PhD student um, who says this is um, the the newest big business gimmick. It, it's, it's the new buzzword behind which yeah. business will try to claim that it is trustworthy um, and, 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 and is, is um, addressing social issues. Yeah. Um, who is right and who's wrong and why?
1: The answer is both are right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, it is a growing movement in terms of a realisation of the importance of purpose, but it's also potentially a technique that companies can use for greenwashing or whitewashing their businesses. And that is why what I'm emphasising here is, first of all, clarity around the notion of purpose. Because people basically use the term to mean whatever they like. And there's a great debate about, well, does a purpose have to be public or Can it just be a private purpose? Is it all right to have a purpose which is just about making money? And so the notion that I'm putting forward about what purpose is about is around this notion of solving problems and doing so in a profitable way to emphasize the fact that it is not about charity or CSR, It's about putting purpose at the heart of companies, and it's a way of reformulating what companies are about. It's not even about just stacking them high and selling them cheap. It's about thinking about how you actually solve other people's problems. And that's the potential basis for a trustworthy corporation. Now, to ensure that this is not greenwashing or whitewashing, What is required is an ability to be able to oversee what is happening and to be sure that those who are doing this are accountable for what they're doing. And that's where the notions of governance and measurement become critically important to demonstrate the extent to which companies are really upholding their social capital and natural capital and human capital. And the the way in which they are providing a degree of accountability to not only their investors, but also to the other parties to the firm that have invested capital alongside that of the financial capital. So that is what is required to ensure that this does not end up as being the second form of purpose that you describe, but is is a real form along the lines of the first type.
2: Let me just quickly follow up um by definition, does a tobacco company not have purpose?
1: The answer is no. And I want, to, um, I want to illustrate this in relation to some of those admirable companies that I was just referring to at the end of the 19th century. The Cadbury's, Roundtree's, Fries, etc. As I said, nearly all Quaker companies nearly all involved in manufacturing of chocolate. Why were they nearly all involved in the manufacturing of chocolate? The answer is because in 19th century Britain and, I think, America, the typical working person's breakfast consisted of drinking ale. So they started off the day drunk before they got any further. (laughs) And there was a feeling amongst many Quaker companies that this was not the best condition for British society. <laughs> and so they came up with the idea, well, instead of drinking air, why don't they drink a nice hot cup of chocolate instead? So that's, ri- that's literally why they place so much emphasis on um, chocolate. Now, it did actually contribute to solving that particular problem But 150 years later, we realise that there's another problem associated with chocolate, and that is, of course, obesity and diabetes. And so now there is a recognition that actually chocolate manufacturers need to change their business. And the more enlightened of them are recognising they have to fundamentally change the nature of their business away from a focus on Cheap forms of confectionery. Now a tobacco company is in a similar position. And the issue is to what extent are companies seriously committed to changing their models in such a way that they do not continue to sell essentially addictive products to people. And the question as to whether or not company be it a confectionery company or a tobacco company has a purpose relates to the extent to which they don't just regard this as being a journey that they can dra- gradually move along but something that is of great urgency in terms of them recognising the change in societal needs away from what they've traditionally produced to what they need to produce going forward. Thank you. Thank um... you.
2: Along the same lines, um, in the early days, not recently, in the early days of Facebook, did Facebook have a purpose as you define it? Yes, and then it, Then it went off the rails. Okay, so uh, <laughs>
1: Facebook very much had a purpose in terms of creating social capital. And let's be clear that these social network uh, companies create huge amounts... Of social capital. But the interesting feature about social capital is that it is, in essence, a prime form of a natural monopoly. Because the more people that are connected to the system, the greater the success of that system. So it almost immediately creates a public policy problem. Namely, what, to, how do you control this natural monopoly? But the natural monopoly then takes on a particular form in the case of social network companies like Facebook, that is to say they are global natural monopolies. They're not only multinationals, the product itself is a global product. And that makes traditional forms of regulation most inappropriate for dealing with them, because regulations are based for the large part on national boundaries, whereas the products, let alone the companies, are international and global in nature. That's the second problem. The third problem is, as I described earlier on, they don't employ, for the most part, either material capital or financial capital. The main capital that they employ are human capital and social capital. And one thing we have no idea about in terms of regulation is how to measure the assets of businesses on the basis that we... used for regulating traditional utilities or other monopolies. So we have no firm foundation on which to design regulation, even if we could actually control these global monopolies. And that reflects a final feature that makes that control particularly difficult. And that is to say, competition policy as it grew up in the Chicago school was all about antitrust in relation to product Monopoly, distortions. That's not the primary issue. That's not the main problem that one faces in the world. It's a matter of the, the social uh, problems that are created and the use of data and issues like that, again, about which we know very little in terms of how to structure regulation and competition.
2: And even in terms of human capital, there are really two, two types of human capital involved. One is the, the people who write the algorithms... And the other um, is the people from whom they extract information. Absolutely. I mean, Facebook is sort of a new extractive
1: industry. Absolutely. Yeah. But not unusual, because if you think about Uber, for example, it does exactly the same. Well,
2: yeah, I'm, I, um, I guess I'm... And, 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 yeah, and it has exactly the same sort
1: of conflict. Right.
2: Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't want to monopolize the time. We have a lot of uh, people here who would love to hear from you.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you. Thank
3: you. Yes, I'm going to open it up for questions. But before I do, i, I just like to ask one question of my own. Um, we are the Kennedy School of Government, and I'm wondering, Colin, if you can talk about what is the role um, in the, the reforms that you are talking about. I mean, you're talking about a, a very major radical overhaul of the definition of capitalism with a number of um, uh, implementation issues. What is the role of government in this? And for the students in the audience, they're thinking about working in the private sector or working in government. Uh, how, do they think, how do they think about that? And, why, and, 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 and just to start off, I mean, why can't government do all this? Why, why do we need the change in the corporate sector itself? Why can't government fix the problems?
1: Okay. On the last point, I've given you an illustration of how government is just not placed using its traditional tools for controlling the types of problems that are emerging. And on the contrary, the issue that's arising is that corporations are growing to a scale where in some cases they are larger than countries. And as they grow in scale, and as governments find themselves increasingly unable to finance the public services (coughs) they traditionally provided, They turn to the private sector to do it for them. And hence we've observed privatizations contracting out as the mechanism for essentially providing services, goods and services, to which we turn for governments to uh, satisfy our needs. So we are increasingly dependent on institutions that uh, we have no Effective means of controlling and using traditional tools to provide a lot of our needs. And the role of government then goes beyond this traditional form of essentially crime and punishment, of saying that we set the rules and then we punish those who abuse the rules, to saying we need to think about aligning the interests of companies with us as society is more general. And the way in which government has a role to play in doing that is through the various instruments that I talked about earlier on. That is to say, thinking about how we've misconceived the nature of the company under our current corporate law and how we need to reformulate that corporate law, how we need to reconfigure regulation along the lines of what I was just talking about. Uh, and I'll give you an illustration of how it can use existing forms of law quite effectively in this area. One of the most interesting developments in this country has been the emergence of uh, B corps and in particular the Benefit uh, Corporation, by which directors of companies have a legal obligation to uphold a public purpose as well as a commercial objective. And if they fail to do so, then their shareholders can take out injunctive relief against the directors of those companies. Now those benefit corporations to date have been relatively small companies. But what I'm suggesting here is that actually the most useful application of that model is at exactly the opposite end of the spectrum in relation to the commanding heights of the economy like utilities and infrastructure providers uh, and um, public uh, goods and services providers. It's in those companies that we want to incorporate their public licence to operate in their articles and their charters and to impose a fiduciary duty on directors to uphold the public purpose as well as their commercial activities. So those are some areas where government uh, can play a very productive role in bringing about the changes that I'm talking about. But perhaps the most significant, and this comes on to your issue about, well, what should people thinking about moving into the private or the public sector uh, consider in making those choices? What I'm arguing here is that that division between the public and the private sector is An unfortunate, unnecessary and unhelpful one. Because in essence, what I've been describing here when I talk about the purpose of companies as being to solve problems of people and planet profitably, you can interpret that as being a private objective or you can interpret it as being a social objective. And the extent to which it's one or the other depends on the choice of companies except where... Regulators deliberately align the purpose with a public and social objective. So we can use this model equally well for thinking about how to run state-owned corporations as we do in relation to privately-owned corporations. And what we need to think about in this regard is building effective partnerships between the public sector and the private sector so that this conflict is not an inherent feature of the system but instead, one has an element of commitment by companies to uphold their public purposes when they are supposed to do that.
3: Um, okay, that's great. So um, why don't we open it up for questions now? Uh, okay, over there. Sorry.
1: Thank you very much, Professor. My question relates to the meaning of the purpose of the company. Yeah. I wanted to know who defines the purpose, how it is defined, how to avoid uh, the politicization of the purpose, what if that purpose goes against the majority of the population, and how to define what is a good or bad purpose
3: for a company to...
1: Okay, well thank you for that question. Uh, And it's a very important one, because first of all your question as to who defines it is that initially it's clearly defined by the founder of the company. Okay? You set up a company as an entrepreneur, you define the purpose of why you set up that company, why you created Remember what I defined as being purpose was why something exists, why it's created, what it's there to do. So that purpose is initially defined by the founders of companies. And in many cases the founders of companies also want to retain control so that they can go on ensuring that that purpose is not lost as the company develops. And one of the uh, striking features about the US is the ability of many founders to do exactly that. So Larry Page and Sergey Brin, in the case of Google, retain Control over the purpose of what was Google and now is Alphabet. Reed Hoffman retained control of LinkedIn until he sold it off to Microsoft. Mark Zuckerberg, whom we've just referred, retains control of the purpose of Facebook. What's allowed all of them to do that has been the existence of quote dual class shares, by which. Founders are able to go on retaining control even as they raise capital and sell off the shares in the company. Now that's a very important distinction between the United States and the UK. One of the reasons why we've lost that uh, purpose of the founders is that in the case of the UK we are not able to use dual class shares. Now to come to your point about politicisation and uh, what makes for a good or a bad purpose and what happens when the purpose is contrary to the interests of the population at large. That comes to exactly the issue that I was talking about in terms of the need then for governments and regulators to be able to step in as in the case of companies like Google and Facebook and (coughs) ensure that there is an alignment between the public interest and the private purpose. So when companies are starting up and small, it's perfectly appropriate and we want to have as much diversity in terms of corporate purposes as possible. And the need to align public with, private with public only then emerges when the sorts of conflicts that you're talking about uh, uh, appear.
3: Uh, okay, that, that, um, that's great. So I'll take the next question. I, I did um, want to uh, just mention, I see we have Koji's here from Japan and Marius from Germany and people from uh, a number of people around the world, Colin. So um, one of the things that is great in the book is that you draw in examples from all over the world. And so, uh, maybe in a couple of these questions, you might touch on the situation in Germany and Japan, sure. Sure. where some of the um, there's a slightly different ownership model. Okay, so the next, I think you had your hand up, and yeah. uh, then John.
0: I'd like to ask you about the implementation of UK. Um, so, you say we need whole change, wholesale change in, in corporate law. And you know how it goes, right? Maybe over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we can get something big happening. Um, There are
1: maybe other ways, ESG reporting, I don't know. Do you care about the implementation at all or do you want to leave it to others? No. I'm absolutely uh, focused on implementation and as I described the, uh, the current stage of the Future of the Corporation program, it's all about implementation of identifying policies and mechanisms for implementing these ideas and what will bring about effective change. So Uh, In terms of mechanisms such as ESG and reporting, those, as I described, are very much a focus under what we're terming the measures of performance uh, and alternative ways of doing that, and ensuring that there is an alignment of the interests of companies in terms of what they report and their incentives with the achievement of these objectives. So it's very much focused on bringing about Uh, the types of change that we're talking about here.
3: John.
0: Um, So I'm intrigued by your kind of reference earlier to Larry Fink, and maybe we can use that as an example, and I want to extend off of something that that John um, brought up, you know, the Marty Lip and Larry Fink public relations kind of aspect of it. Um, I could make an argument that private and social incentives are actually aligning and that Larry Fink is taking the path that he's on, um, not just because he maybe believes it and thinks it's an important social contribution, but because it's also in, the, in his interest as a fiduciary. Um, and the argument would go something like um, he has, a, first of all, BlackRock has $7 trillion management yep. assets management, yep. right? Half of that is in equities, yep. and half of the equities are in index funds. Yep. So he doesn't have the ability to go into an index fund and say, I don't like that yep. company, get rid of it. Yep. He also has investors that are primarily pension funds so yep. they have a long-term perspective on yep. the retirement funds. And so it's in his fiduciary interest to make sure that the system as a whole works because that's the one thing that he can affect in some ways and that he's really doing this. And, that, and you're, so you're starting to see an alignment of the private incentives with the social incentives in a way that could be incredibly constructive for rethinking elements of capitalism and how how you define the firm. And he, because if you take BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, as you mentioned. That's 20 trillion. And it, they control about 18% of the equity. market. Absolutely, um, yeah. And so. Do you, am I just being overly optimistic that there may be these incentives that are aligning? Or am, is it you know, John's version where it's a public relations ploy and it's just to def, you know, watch the shiny object over here while we all go make money?
1: Well, the answer is yes and no. It is, you're, you're absolutely right in terms of what is described as the universal owner, the feature that increasingly we as investors... And institutions like BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity own a global portfolio. And we haven't got much choice in terms of what we own because increasingly, as you're describing, we're all just holding the indices around the world. And that has the feature that what then concerns us as investors and concerns the BlackRocks and Fidelities is exactly the things that should concern us as societies. It's the systemic risks. It's not the risk of an individual company. It's the systemic risks of political intervention, of trade wars, of <coughs> environmental degradation, giving rise to regulation, etc. Those are the real risks uh, that concern investors and institutions. And therefore, it is, as you say, in the interest of the leaders of those institutions to get companies focused on solving problems and putting purpose first. So in that respect, I think you're absolutely right, Uh, there's quite a lot of optimism behind those statements that are being made. What makes me more cautious are a number of features. And that is, first of all, the extent to which Larry Fink has put his money where his mouth is has been pretty limited. He's expanded the number of people working in this area from 20 to 60, you know, three times, but 60 for managing several thousand companies. It's a bit of a joke. That's right? what my hedge funds, friends are saying, yeah. too. It's like, yeah. we'll see what he really does. Uh, 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 absolutely. So, so so, that that's the first cause of concern. The second is, I think that these all miss a key element, and it comes back to something that I was saying, and I want to pick up on what Linda was uh, suggesting just now, and that is distinguishing between the UK and the US which have these highly diversified systems of capitalism by which basically everyone is investing in dispersed uh, institutional investments. That is not a feature of virtually every other country in the world. Nearly every country in the world even the largest listed companies have substantial blockholders in them that command a significant fraction of the shares in the company. Now those blockholders are, in a large majority of cases, families. So in most c- companies in the world, and I'm not just talking about the 200 million private companies in the world, I'm talking about the 40,000 listed companies, which are relatively large companies in the world, even in those companies, they are dominated by families in particular that have controlling shareholdings in those companies. What's the importance of that? The importance of that is that those l- large blockholders have both the incentives and the ability to be able to exercise control in such a way as to ensure that a purpose is stated and a purpose is upheld. And if they fail to do so, the consequence is not just a financial consequence but also a reputational consequence on the name of those families. And that element of having a, an identifiable shelter, not just anonymous, dispersed shelters, is extremely important in creating the notions of relationships that I'm underpinning as being key to the successful uh, development of this purpose-driven corporations. So, yes, some optimism, but no, that is not the entire solution to the problem.
3: Do you want to comment, Do you want to comment on that? No? 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 You don't. Okay. okay, so the next question was here. Yes. Right. Uh, there is a
0: delicate matter, uh, which is uh, corporations have to compete with each other, yeah. not only in one country, but globally, in yeah. order to survive. Yeah. So, how to make a balance
2: between commercial competition and public purposes?
1: Okay. So, uh, this, this this question often comes up. This question often comes up about to what extent is a focus of purpose inconsistent with companies having to operate in a competitive and increasingly competitive global world. Does it undermine the competitiveness of companies and of nations? The answer I would give is exactly the opposite. And I've suggested that the most successful companies in the world are those that have clearly defined purposes and ownership and governance structures which demonstrate that they uphold those corporate purposes. I want to again draw examples from around the world and in particular... Focus on Denmark as a country which has what are termed industrial foundations. Those are companies that are owned by trusts and foundations that have as their primary objective to uphold the purposes and values of the founders of those companies. So companies like Bertelsmann, Bosch, Carlsberg, IKEA, Tata, Tata's an Indian. Uh, conglomerate, industrial foundation, and firm. In all of those cases, the primary function of those foundations is to ensure that the companies, the commercial activities below them, have defined purposes that are <coughs> upheld and which reflect the values of the founders of those businesses. Those companies have been commercially extremely successful in terms of their profitability, but they also display another feature. And that is, they survive. They have a much longer life than companies in similar industries of similar size, but of different ownership structure. And it's an illustration of the extent to which unconventional views of companies, forms of ownership that many people would say is the worst type of ownership and governance because it's essentially putting companies in the the hands of a small group of people who determine the destiny of the firm. On the contrary, it's essentially provided the stability for companies to be able to really develop a strong purpose and uphold those purposes.
3: So we're um, running short of time, so why don't we take your question and your question um, both um, quickly, and then you can respond to those two, and then I think um, we'll we'll have to uh, end at that point. So... Thank you very much for uh, this lovely introduction to purpose. Um, My question is concerned with the operationalization of purpose. So, if we don't go with Milton Friedman's idea, we have to go probably with Peter
1: Drucker's idea, who says uh, free enterprise cannot be justified as being good for business, but as being good for society. So, a purpose
2: has to make a contribution to societal wealth, to, say, public value creation. But as a CEO, you can only manage what you measure. So how do we measure this societal
1: license to operate this public value creation that is the ultimate result
3: of a good purpose? Okay, and so let's take your question as well, and then, Colin, you can answer both.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, I have a 40 years of <laughs> arduous experience in this field, so let me ask this question. Uh, is there a role for a, quote, world corporate charter organization to reconcile the mismatch between large companies, particularly the 40,000 you mentioned, probably another 40 or 50,000 that have truly transnational? markets, supply chains, customers, and so forth, on the one hand. On the other hand, the licensing of these corporations, be it under British law, German law, Chinese law, U- U.S. law, where uh, that disconnect, the national charter versus the global footprint and handprint, can we resolve that through a new regulatory, global regulatory body? Okay,
1: so first of all the question on measurement, Uh, the answer is that that is a key element of this and the development of measures that reflect other forms of capital is what is being undertaken in a number of different organisations and uh, there are some very interesting ideas that are emerging in terms of how to do this effectively and I'll just give you one illustration I sit on a uh, committee in the UK that's concerned with natural capital the preservation of our environment and our natural capital and a key element of what we've been doing as part of that is to determine how to measure natural capital both in terms of how governments should be measuring it from a national point of view, but also how corporates should be measuring it from the point of view of accounting and the valuation uh, from the perspective of investors. And what has emerged has been a mechanism by which one can do it in a form that doesn't involve creating very subjective valuations based on discounting benefits into the long term, but essentially use traditional forms of accounting which focus on the costs involved in terms of investing in natural capital and maintaining and sustaining natural capital. So I just want to emphasize that as being an illustration of the way in which one can provide very effective mechanisms for allowing management to... Measure what they manage in such a way as to not just be focused on financial capital alone. In terms of your question about should we be looking to have a global form of charter or a global form of regulation to address the problems that we that I that I've been describing, the answer is that there clearly would be merits in terms of having some form of global regulatory system for dealing with companies that are becoming increasingly global in terms of the nature of their activities. But we have to be cautious in terms of not then imposing a particular model of what the firm should look like. So when you talk about a global charter, what would concern me is the notion that there is in essence one particular form In which we should be looking for companies to structure their activities. To illustrate the concern around that, if we took the current paradigm as the guide to what that global charter should be, it would focus on, for example, Delaware. It would focus on the notion that it's all about shareholder interests. That, for the reasons I was saying, would not be an appropriate form on which we should be harmonizing our global charters. We need to allow companies to choose forms that are suited to their particular types of activities. If we could essentially create a system of corporate law which did that, both at a national and a global level, then I would be less concerned about this development. But at the moment, the best way of achieving that is in essence through having a diversity of forms of corporate laws in different countries around the world which for example allow companies in Europe that choose to incorporate under German law to have a two-tier board structure which allows for employee representatives on the board whereas if they choose to incorporate in the UK at least so long as it remains part of the EU allows European companies to uh, emphasise the importance of shareholder interest. So at the moment the best way of in- Creating that diversity is through allowing that multiplicity of corporate form.
3: Okay. Well, um, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to thank um, first of all to thank the Masavar Romani Center for Business and Government and uh, uh, John Hay and Scott Leland for uh, for <coughs> sponsoring this session, and to thank uh, very much John Ruggie and our special guest Colin Mayer for a really provocative conversation. The book is Prosperity, Better Business Makes the Greater Good by Colin Mayer, and uh, it has gotten absolutely rave reviews in the Financial Times and elsewhere, and we're all very, very grateful uh, to you, Colin, for coming over and speaking to us. Thank you.